Well, thank you for joining us tonight as we continue our study in the book of Philippians. Tonight, we're going to finish out the first chapter and start chapter two, take us right up to what is probably the most familiar passage in the book of Philippians. To get there, you'll have to join us next week, but we're going to kind of set the stage for that passage. And so we're going to begin tonight by looking at Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. And I want us to see what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. And I hope that you'll see from this study tonight that Christians should be marked by unity and humility. Unity and humility. Let's begin by reading Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, may you speak to us through your word during this time. May your spirit illuminate our minds and our hearts. May you cause me to think and speak clearly and cause us to be changed through your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The first thing I want us to see in this passage is that Christians are to stand together in unity. Stand together in unity. And I think that's clear. It comes right out of this verse. Paul says, he begins with this word only. Now this this really has the meaning of, look, pay attention. This one thing and only this thing. Maybe you hear a, a pastor in a sermon and as he tries to really get people's attention, he's like, look, if you've been sleeping or daydreaming, I want you to listen to this one thing. If you only walk away hearing one thing I say today, I want it to be this. And that's the spirit that Paul brings as we begin this passage. Nothing should distract you from this. Pay attention to what I'm about to say because this is important. Only... He writes, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This isn't the first time that Paul would use this sort of language. He uses it in other places. But in this passage, he, he draws on the fact that Philippi was a Roman colony. He, he literally writes, live out your citizenship. Behave as citizens of heaven is the thought that he's communicating. Philippi, again, was this Roman colony, and what that meant was that if you lived in the city of Philippi, you enjoyed all the rights and all the privileges as if you lived in the city of Rome. That Philippi was this outpost. You want to know what Rome is like? Look at Philippi. Look at how the people there live. You'll see how the people in Rome live. Uh, you know, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland. I have a friend, a family from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it's funny how each region of our country has certain distinctive ways that people talk, certain distinctive phrases that people use, certain foods that you might like or not like. And a lot of times I can hear someone talk and say, wait, are you from, are you from Pittsburgh? You can hear in the way that they talk. And, you know, whatever pride we might have as being citizens of America and what a great country it is. I'm so proud to be an American. Whatever sense of pride that we have as as Christians, we have a higher 
calling. We are citizens of heaven. And so this is an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will never fail. We should live as citizens of heaven. Later in this same book, Paul would write in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he would just remind them even more clearly, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he would say, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. It means something to be a Roman citizen, and it means something to be a follower of Christ. I mentioned I'm from Baltimore. I'm a huge Ravens fan. I love football. I love watching the Ravens. And uh, one thing that I love about the Ravens is in their locker room, right as, as they leave to go out on the field, there's a sign above the door that says, play like a Raven. And before every game, before every practice, the players, as they go out to the field, they see this sign. A lot of them reach up and touch it. A reminder, play like a raven. What does that mean? It means to play with passion and play with toughness and to play together as a team. But it means something, to play like a raven. And Paul here is writing, look, live like a Christian. Live like a citizen of heaven. That means something. What's implicit here is that The gospel has changed them. There is no such thing as someone who becomes a Christian and nothing changes, ever. It means something to be a follower of Christ. It changes us. It changes the way that we live. But look what Paul says. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. You know, Paul realized that his status was uncertain. He wasn't sh- he was in prison. He wasn't sure was he going to live or die? Was he going to be released soon or was he going to stay in prison for much much longer? He wasn't sure. But he wanted to hear good things about this church. He wanted to hear that they are first of all standing firm in one spirit. This is a, a military term. Maybe in your mind you're thinking of Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul says, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. It means something to stand firm as our culture changes so rapidly. It means something to stand firm. G.K. Chesterton in his great book Orthodoxy, he says there are an infinity of angles at which one may fall, but only one at which one may stand. And Paul is here encouraging the church, hey, look, I want to hear that you are standing firm. As I was thinking about this passage, my mind immediately went to the movie uh, The Patriot with Mel Gibson. And there's this great scene in that movie where as the army is, is fighting, the British army, they start to retreat. They start to fall back. And one of the other soldiers looks at Mel Gibson's character and he says, the line is faltering. And so Mel Gibson begins sprinting to the front of the line and he grabs the American flag and you know trumpets are playing. It's this really dramatic scene. You can't watch it without getting goosebumps. But he goes to the front of the line and he just says, no retreat, no retreat. Hold the line, hold the line. It's this idea, stand firm, don't move. Don't retreat. Don't surrender. But not just standing firm. He uses another phrase, with one mind, 
striving side by side. This is literally the idea of contending together. It's an idea that couples individual responsibility with the, the idea of working together as a unit. And again, my mind went to a football. You think about an offensive line and how it works, and you have all the different positions on the line, and if one person is doing their job, that's great. But if only one person is doing their job, then the line is going to falter. It requires each person on the line doing their job, but doing it together if you want to actually accomplish anything. And as Christians, we are teammates. We're not, we're not ninjas. We're not spies. We don't, we don't sneak around by ourselves. No, we work together as a team. Christian sanctification, Christian ministry, Christian life happens within the community of believers. He says, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. You, you can't miss this idea of unity, that Christians are to stand together in unity. One spirit, one mind. I'll say one more thing about this. That this idea illustrates to us that there's a difference between um, approving of a cause and partnering or cooperating in the cause. I mean, let's say it a different way, that we are not cheerleaders on the sidelines. We are players on the field. We are not saying, you know, hey, you guys all do ministry, do a great job striving side by side. No, he looks at the church and says, each of you should be striving side by side. There is a fight that needs to be fought. As, as Christians, we are working together. We are doing ministry together. And what's our motivation for this? What's our motivation for unity? It, it's the gospel. You listen to how he starts. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he ends by saying, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's all about mission. Uh, one commentator said the gospel is all about reconciliation and unreconciled people do not advertise it well. If the whole biblical story is about God reconciling himself with humanity, what does it look like for a church to be fragmented and broken and disconnected and, and not unified? It doesn't advertise it well. Remember Jesus in his high priestly prayer, he prayed that Christians would be together in unity. John 17, verse 20. <clears throat> Jesus is praying and he says, I do not ask for these only, as he looks around at his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's Jesus praying for me and praying for you, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. Jesus, even as he's praying for the unity of believers and the unity of the church, he realizes that it is a sign to an unbelieving world that God has actually done something. We stand together in unity for the gospel, but not just stand together in unity. Number two, I want you to see we suffer together with confidence. Let's read the next couple of verses. 
verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Paul says, look, there's always going to be opposition. There's always going to be people that are opposed to the gospel. As he was writing to the church in Corinth, he said, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. A lot of times we might think that effective ministry, God-blessed ministry, means a ministry without conflicts. But the biblical story is completely opposite of that. But it's important that we see that the conflict should be external and not internal. He says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So there's two sides here. He's saying, first of all, you don't need to spend time and energy attacking each other. There is a a battle to be won. There's no sense fighting in the barracks. These are your opponents. But he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation. So here again, Paul's reminding us that there's two sides. There's only two eternal destinies. There's only two. Either with Christ or without Christ. Heaven is to come. Our opponents will not ultimately win. We know how the story ends. So so don't be frightened by your opponents. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. This is a reminder that all of this comes from God. All of this falls under the umbrella of the loving providence of our God. So there's opposition, verse 28. Verse 29, he makes it even more clear. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Look at how he says that. It has been granted to you that you should do two things. You should believe. And that's something we're used to hearing. We're used to hearing, yes, God has granted salvation. Praise the Lord for that. Thank God for that. But then listen to the next part. Just as God has granted you salvation, he has also granted you the opportunity, the privilege, the blessing of suffering. We don't normally look at it that way, even if we might look at our lives and recognize, you know what, suffering is inevitable. That's true. And that's a good step. But what? It's, a, it's another step for us to recognize the suffering that comes into our lives as God's gracious work, as God's gift to us, as God's work of sanctification within us to make us more like Christ. Paul was well acquainted with this. Again, he was writing from prison. He would say just later in this book that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Towards the end of his life, as he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he reminds him, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We can't get away from it. It's going to happen. But we need to recognize that it is a gift from our loving God. We stand together in unity. We suffer together with confidence. And thirdly and lastly, we serve together 
with humility. We're going to jump to chapter 2. But he's continuing the same thought. So, that word so just means therefore. So based on what I've just said, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We serve together with humility. Hopefully you, you saw the word humility in there. But look at what Paul writes here. So, so we said, therefore, if, and, and these ifs are really uh, since, since this is true, or because this is true. So therefore, because we have encouragement in Christ, we have comfort from the Father, love, and participation in the Spirit, he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Complete my joy, Paul writes. He's writing from prison and he's telling the church that, you know what would complete my joy? Not my release. That would be the natural thing. You know, it would really make me happy to be released from this prison. He says, no, complete my joy. I will complete my joy when I hear that you as a church are walking in unity. We talked about how unity is for gospel mission, and that's true. Jesus even said that. But it's not just a practical issue. It's not just meant for gospel mission. Unity is the mark of God's saving work. You look at the New Testament, and God is working and making people come together. He's bringing together people that shouldn't come together, but the gospel brings them together. Unity is a mark of God's work. And so he just piles up these phrases. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. What does it mean to have the same love? It doesn't mean loving the same things. He doesn't say having the same loves. That's an easy way to become friends with someone, right? If you realize that you have a common interest, a common hobby, a common love. But he doesn't say that. He just says have the same love. This is love each other the way that God has loved you. A love that overlooks, a love that forgives, a love that sees the best in people. This is more than just agreeing with people and saying, you know what, yeah, okay, we got to be together. No, this is actually caring about people. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So that's the positive part of it. But verse 3, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You know, self-centeredness is what separates believers more than anything else. More than differences of opinion, more than differences in politics or theology and doctrine, it's self-centeredness, the selfish ambition and conceit. I think just we can just reflect and, and look at our own lives. Do, do I have selfish motives when I'm helping other people? Have you ever had that where you're doing something good, but even in the midst of it, you realize, you know, my motivations 
are way off. And we would never come out and say that, but we, we feel it, don't we? Maybe we're, we're doing something and we're hoping, man, well, I hope so, somebody sees what I'm doing right now. I hope they recognize me for what I'm doing right now. How upset do we get when our suggestions aren't followed, when our hard work goes unrecognized? And Paul is here saying, those things should not have a place in the community of believers. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This is the idea that Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when he says, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. John Stott would say, At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, Pride is the greatest enemy, and humility our greatest friend. But instead of selfish ambition or conceit, we are to, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We see a move here from Paul speaking corporately as he addresses the whole church. He says, be of the same mind, have the same love, being full accord and of one mind. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. But here he brings it down and says, let each of you, let each one of you. It's a reminder that we are saved and we're brought into a community. We're brought into a family, but we're saved one individual at a time. Just again, to go back to that offensive line idea. Each person doing their own job, but each person doing their own job together as a, as a unit. One commentator was looking at this whole passage, and he basically summed it up like this. He said, steadfastness depends on unity, and unity depends on me. Sometimes we think, well, you know, if that person was only just a little bit more spiritual, we could actually be unified. If that person was just a little less crazy, we could actually be unified. But unity depends on me. Unity depends on each one of us. I think that's what Paul had in mind in Romans chapter 12 where he said, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do everything within you to live peaceably with all. We serve together with humility. So I just think it would be helpful for us to reflect on a couple of ways that we can cultivate humility in our lives. If we know it's this essential Christian virtue, if we know that it's something we're supposed to do, if we know that we're supposed to be unified with other believers, how can we cultivate this in our lives? Here's just a couple ways. Number one, stay close to the cross. Stay close to the cross. Remember the gospel. The gospel that from beginning to end is all grace. It's a good reminder to us that there is not a single person that has ever been saved in the history of the world that required more grace to save them than, than my salvation did, than your salvation did. It's all grace from beginning to end. We get to the end of our lives and, and by God's grace have stayed close to him, have stayed faithful to him, and we look back, and it's not our own efforts that have got us there. Even that is grace. From beginning to end, stay close to the cross. Number two, stay in your Bible. Let God speak to you 
daily. Let his word shape you. Let it change you. Let it shape the way you think. Let it shape the way that you talk. Let it shape the way that you act and that you interact with other people and other believers. Stay in your Bible. Number three, pray. Probably the most powerful indictment of pride in our lives that is often unrecognized is our the lack of attention that we give to prayer. Prayer is the reminder that we can accomplish nothing apart from God, that we can't resist temptation apart from His Spirit at work within us, that we can't bring anyone to faith in Christ apart from His Spirit moving in their lives. So we pray that God would use us. Number four, we serve others. We serve. We exercise this muscle of service. Jesus himself said, I have come to serve. We serve. Number five, and lastly, we practice encouragement. There's not a single person that we're going to run into today or any day that is just overflowing with encouragement, that doesn't need any more encouragement. All of us need encouragement. Let's practice intentional encouragement. We recognize God's grace in people's lives. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's, let's tell them. Let's tell people what they mean to us. Let's tell people how God has used them to bless us. Let's practice encouragement. We do those things. I think those are good, helpful, practical, and biblical ways for us to cultivate humility in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would allow this word that we've looked at briefly tonight to remain in our hearts and our minds, God. That the Spirit would cause us to be more like Christ, that the Spirit would cause these words to continue to resonate within us, that you would do in our lives what only you can do, and that as we go about our lives today and this week, God, that we would live worthy lives of the gospel calling that you have called us to. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.